0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 393. Hey, welcome back. I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited to introduce to you this week's guest, Jacob Vanderslice. Not only do I think he has possibly the coolest first name out there, Jacob is a principal at Van West Partners, which is a Denver-based real estate investment firm where they focus on the acquisition and management of self-storage properties. That's what we're going to be discussing today on the show. Van West has an established track record with over $195 million in real estate assets, so Jacob knows a thing or two about this space. I'm excited to dig into it with him talk all about asset class that is so yeah let's roll right into it without further ado all right today welcome on the show jacob banderslice jacob hey thanks so much for joining us
2: always good to be uh, on with another jacob your, your, your own.
1: <laughs> power team right here
2: <laughs> that's right that's right let's go jacob,
1: tell us a little bit about who you are your background what you do in the world of real estate investing
2: yeah, I'm based out of Denver, Colorado. I'm a principal at a private equity shop called Fanwest Partners. We've been investing in real estate full-time for about 15 years. We've covered a lot of asset classes, single-family residential, multifamily, retail, office. Mainly been focused on self-storage the last six years. We built our first self-storage facility in 2015 here in Denver and kind of kept going, expanded into the Midwest and the Southeast. And we've got about 35 storage facilities as of today. We're buying another one next week kind of all over the country. So it's been a good asset class and we're excited for 2022 and buying more deals. You have all this broad
1: experience across all these different asset classes, Jacob. So why self-storage as opposed to multifamily or single family residential, et cetera, like you mentioned?
2: Yeah, we've done a number of apartment buildings over the years and we wish we would have done more. We thought the market was getting long in the tooth four or five years ago. And like we often are, we were very wrong, kind of kept going. It continues to keep going. Cap rates are getting compressed but we had studied self-storage for a number of years and we liked its historic resistance to recessions and downturns. It seems to perform well in, in good times and bad times. And operationally, we found it was a little more scalable than some other asset classes, month-to-month leases, uh, no fair housing laws. I'm going to sound like dirty capitalist when I say that, but it's true. So yeah, we our first couple of deals we built, which is kind of a different strategy than buying value at existing. And it's very much... Even though it's arguably a little bit easier to manage, it's still a very operationally intensive business. We're a self-storage management company before we're a real estate investment company, as you know, operations are critical, whether it's multifamily, self-storage, retail, whatever it might be. So yeah, just like the historic performance of the asset class. And we think it's a good balance of downside protection, current cash flow, and of course, potential upside.
1: There's a lot of quirks and unique factors about self-storage. One of those being like you alluded to, it's much easier to evict someone's stuff from a self-storage unit than it is to evict somebody physically from their primary residence. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Depending on the state that you're in, if a residential tenant doesn't pay, it could take a long time to get them out a very long time, especially the last year and a half in self-storage. We try to do workouts with our customers or they have a cash flow problem, but if they don't pay, your first line of defense is you turn off their gate access and obviously you can't turn off someone's or lock their door on their multifamily apartment. So they can't get in. So we turn off their gate access first and if enough time goes by, we eventually auction the contents of their unit and the auctions are done not so much to collect money on the valuables they have in there, which sometimes we do, but most of the time we don't. The auctions are done just to get that unit back in service so we can replace that non-paying customer with a paying customer. All in maybe a month and a half to get somebody out if you go all the way. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jacob paint a picture for us, if you will, of what your typical
1: self storage asset property looks like. Is it single story, multi-story kind of describe it if you will.
2: Yeah. We've got all the above. We've done some conversions from uh, non-storage use into storage. We did a multi-story office building conversion into storage. We've done industrial single story conversions into storage. But we have facilities that are multi story elevator accessed infill climate control facilities. And we have deals that are just traditional single story drive up units with a gate and no climate control and kind of everywhere in between. So uh, we kind of cover all the bases there as far as product type goes.
1: Yeah, sure. And when I'm driving around my neighborhood, Jacob, you see lots of these kind of infill, uh, very modern, very nice self storage facilities. But then, you know, I go to like rural Oklahoma and there's, you know, very, mom and pop kind of style, you know, gravel kind of parking lot, maybe even dirt parking lot, single row buildings. I don't exactly know how to describe them. There's a name for that style, but you know, so there's like a very wide difference in these different property types as well in my purview.
2: Yeah. The multi-story product type generally performs well in very dense infill locations. We've seen deals like that get built in more suburban locations. And if it's not dense enough, customers, you could probably imagine this once I describe it, customers prefer not to ride an elevator up to store their contents. They have to get a cart, push their stuff to the elevator, wait for it, ride up, push their cart another 100 feet, load and unload and kind of rinse and repeat until they're done. So people generally prefer the single story or ground floor located units versus elevator accessed. And if you're building a multi-story building in a less dense population center or more of a suburban or arguably rural location, You're going to have a big decline in your rates on the elevator access units because customers just don't, there's just too much product. They don't have to go up an elevator, they can find something else. So, the deals we've done that are multi story elevator access have done better in the more dense locations. And the suburban locations are exactly what you just described traditional single story drive up. We have deals that are single story drive up that are also climate controlled and non climate controlled. So, it just kind of depends on the location that you're either building in or targeting your acquisitions in.
1: Sure. Well, Jacob, let's kind of talk about what you've seen differently in this past, say, couple of years in this kind of COVID era we're living in. The way we work, live, and do all kinds of our day-to-day has dramatically changed. Some people have turned their garages into home gyms and their second bedrooms into home offices and et cetera. So what are people doing differently that you've seen in the self-storage space? Is there more junk being collected, pushed out of the house? Into storage units that's kind of what i would think
2: yeah self-storage benefits when there's friction in the economy and by friction i mean people moving up and down the economic ladder people getting jobs or losing jobs getting married divorced upsizing downsizing their homes really life events are kind of demand drivers in self-storage and people have had a lot of those of course the last couple of years we've seen throughout the industry not just in our portfolio but you know all the portfolios we track from the REITs to pr- other private equity shops, we've seen really increased consumer demand. As you said earlier, people are converting that third bedroom into the home office. They're going to the office sometimes or working from home sometimes. And they need a place to keep their stuff. Americans don't like getting rid of stuff. Uh, self-storage is a pretty uniquely American asset class. You don't see a lot of this in Italy, but people will spend you know $1,500 a year to store $1,000 worth of stuff. And it's fire and forget. It hits the credit card every month. They don't have to worry about it. It's out of sight, out of mind. So we've seen a lot of increased consumer demand in the industry, and that's equated to increased occupancy growth, increased revenue growth, and cap rate compression as new capital enters the space. It's driving up prices and driving down yields.
1: Sure. Jacob, you said you've been in the industry for 15 plus years. You've invested in all different types of asset classes. So you've got a diversified portfolio or have throughout your career. What exactly does diversification in the world of real estate mean to you? Does it cross different asset classes or what's that look like in your kind of opinion? Well, it depends on whether you're
2: talking about an operator or an investor. I think for people who invest in as passive investors in syndications and funds, I think sponsor diversification is equally as important as asset class diversification. If you're going to put 500 grand a multifamily, I think you're well served to put 100 with five different sponsors. Even though it's all the same asset class, some locations are going to perform differently. Some sponsors are going to perform differently on the uh, sponsor or fund manager side. Our diversification really comes in the form of geography. We've got a very geographically diverse portfolio and most of self storage. We've got some retail here in Denver and a bunch of single family rentals that we've just accumulated over the years. Most of it storage though. And one of the things that we like about doing a fund structure versus single asset syndications, and we do both by the way. But a fund is interesting because, let's say, in a 10 property portfolio, inevitably you've got two properties that are behind forecast or not performing like you thought they would, six properties that are on forecast for the most part, and two that are ahead, and they kind of balance each other out. So, the the fund strategy and that geographic diversification strategy, if you get a dog in the portfolio, ideally the other deals kind of prop that one up. And eventually that dog doesn't become a dog and somebody else or some other deal might become a dog for whatever reason. And again, they balance each other. Ge- geography is really kind of how we spread our risk out.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Makes sense. So more so these days, you guys are focusing primarily on self-storage. That's your bread and butter kind of looking forward.
2: Yeah, I would say almost all of our time and efforts are focused on storage. We'll do some little kind of uh, you know, vanity side projects here. We'll do some townhome developments once in a while in Denver. Me and my partners uh, about a month ago bought a building uh, just outside downtown Denver. We're going to put a liquor store in it. And we've bought a lot of storage this year, and you're probably wondering, why are you messing around with a tiny deal like that? Well, the answer is because it's fun and because we can't. So we'll, <laughs> we'll play around with other stuff on the side here and there, but mostly yeah. storage.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, you talked earlier, Jacob, you mentioned that you guys, first and foremost, are a self-storage management company. Kind of talk about what goes into the operations of you know, managing and operating a self-storage facility.
2: Well, our fund strategy, this is going to change a little bit next year, we're going to be doing more development projects in addition to our our storage funds, but our funds really, we're targeting existing facilities that are under managed with below market rents, above market expense loads, sometimes they don't have a website. So most of our value creation strategy is not so much in the capital improvement side, it's in the operation side and the management side. And that's why being a good self-storage operator and management company is critical because we are... Our target is to grow NOI, of course, and increase cash flow, increase our yield on costs and eventually monetize and, you know, make a spread down the road. But our business plan is predicated on our ability to get below market customers up to market rents and grow occupancy. So that's why we're really first and foremost, a uh, property management company. Before we're a real estate investment company. We can go find the money to buy deals and we can find the deals to buy. We can find the debt financing, to finance, the acquisitions. But once all that's over, you've got years of operations and you have to be able to execute on that business plan to make the returns that you set out to deliver to your investors.
1: What kind of physical value add opportunities do you see with some self-storage opportunities, whether it be you know, improving the facility? I mean, there's only so much one can do to a self-storage facility, I would think, right? It's not like you're going to go in and put granite countertops and upgraded lighting packages, new appliances right, like you would right. in a multifamily unit. So what kind of physical upgrades do you make?
2: Well, pretty real estate is valuable real estate, whether it's self-storage or something else whether it's your residential customer or a self-storage customer, if they walk up to a building and the building looks good, they're going to feel that whether they know it or not, and they're going to make a decision based on how they react to the walk up of the building. So one of the things we focus on uh, post-acquisition is curb appeal, just making it look better. We rebrand the signage, repaint the doors. If it's in bad shape, we seal coat the asphalt. We're paving a deal in Florida this week that's going to just kind of transform the feel of it. It's an old deal we've had for a while. And it's the only deal in our portfolio. You pointed this out earlier that has gravel drive aisles. And if you want an institutional quality portfolio, you just don't want deals in your asset base with gravel drive aisles. It just doesn't doesn't look good. So we try to make them look pretty, clean, safe, secure. More specifically, we'll install new gate systems that are connected to the internet, new security camera systems, swap and then always focus on any deferred maintenance items that it might come up later down the road so we don't have to expense those. So, if let's say it's got a roof that's maybe got five years left, but it doesn't make sense to replace yet, but you know you will in five years, we'll still replace it. So, we try to capture all those things at acquisition so that we're not having a surprise on the repair and maintenance and OPEX side years down the road.
1: Sure, and then talking about the like operations management value improvement, what are you doing there? Are you maybe implementing like technology you mentioned, kind of like smart locks, keyless entry, and stuff like that, or is it yeah. still kind of like that very like physical on-site property manager there, kind of very labor-intensive model?
2: The days of having someone sit in a wood panel office with the fern in the corner waiting for the phone to ring are gone. You don't need a full-time on-site staff member on certain deal types now. If it's a hundred thousand foot multi-story climate controlled facility, bad things tend to happen at night in a climate controlled facility if someone isn't there to police it. Uh, So those are staff full-time, but on our more traditional non-climate controlled drive-up units, while we do have staff members in that market that'll go by and do repairs and maintenance and quality control checks, there's nobody in a dedicated leasing office waiting for the phone to ring because our customer base can lease units on their phone, make their payments on their phone, sign their lease on their phone or their computer, get their gate access information on their phone or computer. You still need people covering your market and covering your deals, but you don't need someone there, depending on the deal type, uh, sitting in the office the entire time waiting for the phone to ring.
1: Yeah, sure, okay. And I'm sure you know when you're talking about picking a new project to invest in, location's obviously very important. People don't wanna drive 20, 30, 40 miles to go through their stuff, right? So it's very like how conveniently located to them It is. I'm sure that's a big factor in in your decision analysis, right?
2: Yeah, site select. We're to a degree, we're kind of geographically agnostic. Well, we focus on the deal more than the market. Now, we don't want to buy deals in markets that are just epically bad. You know, major declining populations, uh, oppressive state tax regimes. We try to stay away from those. But one of the first things we look at is just good real estate fundamentals. Is it well located? Is there a good wage growth? Is there a story for population growth? And more specifically on the self storage front, We're looking at supply ratios and square feet per capita. So self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we'll track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven or eight square feet per capita in the U S of self-storage. Traditionally, when you're getting over that number, you're becoming a little oversupplied and when you're going under that number, it's kind of undersupplied. So there's opportunity for investment. There doesn't apply to every market. We have deals in markets that have 10 or 11 square feet per capita, which may seem high based on what I just quoted but all the facilities are full. So the supply ratios to a degree are a function of what the market rents are in that submarket. meaning if the market rents are fairly low, more of the population can afford to store. So you have more consumer penetration in terms of who's going to be your customer. And markets with really high rents, like $2 or $2.50 per month per foot, those are a lot more sensitive to new supply because not as many customers can afford to store their stuff when rates are that high. So supply ratio is another thing we look at. And again, just good locations and good market fundamentals.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, Jacob, when you think of uh, maybe renting an apartment to say a millennial, you know, you're going to sign up for a 12 month lease. That person might renew. They may not. They're probably going to bounce around a little bit. They may even move cities. But when you're thinking about, you know, somebody signing up for, you know, storing their stuff in your unit. They're probably not going to move that stuff around, chasing the best rate every 12 months or every six months. Right? You know, ten dollars down the road to save a month. They're probably not going to go load up their stuff, take the weekend, and you know, move it down the road to save you know 120 dollars a year. Do
2: you see that a lot? Yeah, yeah. You teed that up in the fairway for me. That's one of the interesting aspects of self-storage is the very dynamic revenue management, and that can make you money, but it also makes it really tough to forecast. So you have thousands of units, and they're all on month-to-month leases. And every market has its own unique supply and demand curve based on the season. So obviously Florida or Houston where you are are gonna be very different than Milwaukee or Chicago, right? So forecasting out these kind of supply and demand curves is challenging. But one of the cool things about storage on the revenue management side, let's say you've got a unit type, say it's a 10 by 10, and say those are full. You can raise rates on those existing customers with a 30 day notice. And as you mentioned earlier, maybe you raise rates by five or $10 a month people are probably not going to move because of that rate increase. And if you do that rate increase, maybe you swapped out the gate and you painted, you swapped out some doors. There's kind of a reason to support the rate increase, but you can push through rate increases. And again, 10 bucks a month on a unit doesn't seem like a lot, but you amortize that across say a thousand units and you put a cap rate on that. There's a lot of value creation there, right? So that's kind of one of the parts that of the asset class that we like. And then likewise, let's say a deal is not going well. Let's say your occupancy is lower than you want it to be. You can drop rates below market. Offered move in concessions and discounts to fill it up with customers. And then once you get to critical mass occupancy, you can start your kind of rate increases from there. So you can, to a degree, you can experiment month to month on your revenue management. And if an experiment doesn't go well, you can course correct the next month and fix it pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty unique aspect specific to self storage. Now, what about, what kind of debt and lending options are available to these types of projects? You're probably not getting agency debt like you would with multifamily projects. So what's that look like?
2: Yeah, that's one thing that we're very envious of uh, with you multifamily guys is the debt that is available out there for multifamily is just doesn't exist in any other asset class. And I think that's one reason, you know, debt doesn't make a bad deal good by any means, but I think that low cost of capital is partially why multifamily cap rates have been driven down so much because the financing is so attractive. It's not as good in self storage, but it's still pretty good. Our last round of financing we got on the portfolio acquisition a few months ago was ten-year fixed at three point seven percent, full term interest only, sixty-five percent leverage. So, if you're focused on dividend yield, which we are, interest only financing is a great vehicle. Now, the, the downside to interest only financing, of course, is you're not burning off principal, and amortizing debt is a responsible approach to real estate finance, but with debt amortization, you can't monetize that principal pay down unless you either refinance or you sell. I mean, the equity is building up in the portfolio, but you can't get to it and you can't distribute it until you do one of those two things. And that's why we like the interest-only aspect of the debt products that are out there today, because we just have so much of a higher dividend yield and so much higher distributable cash flow
1: earlier, you kind of alluded to a fund versus a single asset uh, syndication. What are you guys doing mostly right now?
2: We're doing both. We're closing our most recent fund this month. We're recording this in December of 21, and that'll close out by the end of the year. And we deployed about 100 million in total costs, roughly 60 million in debt and 40 million in equity. We're doing one single asset syndication at the end of this month that's kind of in between this fund closing and our next one launching. So we do syndications occasionally, but really the only difference between a fund and a syndication is that fund is a collection of assets and the syndication is a single asset typically. A single asset syndication is good because you kind of, you know, what you're getting into, you're not buying into a fund that might buy a deal in a market you don't want to be in for whatever reason, and you can kind of touch and feel the asset a little more in a little more detail than you could the asset base of the fund. The downside to a syndication though, is if that deal doesn't go well, there's nothing else to prop it up, right? But it's just, you're in that deal, deal doesn't go well. Well, there's not 10 other deals that are going to balance it out. So there's benefits and detriments to both. And we do both. Again, most of our deals this year have been in our fund, but we've got one or two syndications that we'll, we'll complete in 21.
1: So from an investor's perspective, Jacob, investing in a self-storage deal like this would be pretty much exactly the same as if they're investing with another syndicator in, say a multifamily deal or a mobile home park or name the asset class, right?
2: Yeah. The structures, you know, they vary from sponsor to sponsor, but we have all the same common elements that a multifamily fund or syndication would or mobile home park. We have a preferred return. We have a split after preferred return between the investors and the sponsor. We charge some fees to keep our lights on. All of our depreciation flows through pro rata to investors based on their contributed capital. And all of those elements are pretty universal, regardless of the asset class. If you're investing in private real estate, you've probably got some form of those elements in the syndication or a fund.
1: You can still invest with retirement funds, IRAs, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I would say the equity we raised this year, probably half of it is cash with uh, just individual capital accounts. Mm-hmm. And a quarter of it are retirement accounts and 401ks. And the other quarter, I would say, are trusts and LLCs. You might recall but the government was threatening to eliminate investors' abilities to invest with self-directed IRAs and not only eliminate their ability on a look-forward basis, but also make it retroactive, which I'm very glad that did not go through because I can't imagine putting $100,000 of your retirement account into a seven-year fund and the government saying that if you don't get this out in two years, it's going to convert to a taxable account and you're going to get hit with taxes. So glad that went away. So yes, uh, retirement accounts are very much still on the table. There's benefits and detriments to cash or retirement accounts in a funder syndication. The main detriment to a retirement account is that you're not enjoying the depreciation you would uh, with a cash investment. And you also could potentially trigger something called unrelated debt financed income. We won't go too far in the weeds. We'll come out here shortly. But that's a tax issue that might be created if the fund is using leverage at the property level certainly something you should research with your custodian before you invest in a deal using leverage. But I think the downsides to that, to using leverage um, are far outweighed by the upsides of using leverage.
1: And that's along the same lines as UBIT tax, right?
2: Yeah. Same thing. Same yeah. thing. Okay. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a complicated kind of calculation to do, but if you run the math on it, using leverage benefits you more than not, even with a yeah. retirement account.
1: Can you take 1031 exchange money from a different asset class and invest it into self storage? Say, you know, say you sell a small multifamily deal, can you roll the funds into a self storage? Is it like kind enough?
2: Yes. And like kind is actually a pretty broad description. I mean, not that you want to buy a jet, but if you want to buy a jet, you could probably 1031, a multifamily sale into an airplane. Like kind is pretty broad. As far as our fund goes, It's really tough to accommodate 1031s as a limited partner into a fund or syndication for a lot of different reasons. So we don't do that. Some guys do. Structurally, it's complicated to set up though. But yeah, you could sell a multifamily building and 1031 into a storage facility and vice versa. What would you have to
1: say to someone, Jacob, who's maybe considering their very first investment into self-storage?
2: Well, I know we're going to do a lightning round later and I might repeat myself on the response to this, but the best way to learn a new asset class is to go out and do a deal. And you've got doing a deal, you've got two options. You can invest in funds and syndications with guys like us and other folks doing self-storage, or you can go out and buy your own deal. Most of our capital base, we've got, um, a lot of high income professionals and entrepreneurs who don't have time to go out and do their own storage deal, but they want exposure to the asset class. So we're kind of a good solution for that. But if you want to do it on your own, you got to research and you got to commit to learning and probably making some mistakes. And you don't typically want to do just one deal. And if you just do one deal, maybe the only reason you did one deal is it didn't go well, so you stopped. But if you get into it, you want to have a story and a plan to accumulate more because you can really amortize a lot of those fixed operational costs across a larger asset base versus one single single asset. Yeah, but sure. in short, yeah. You'll go out and do a deal, do your research and pull the trigger. That's the best way to learn.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's only so much you can learn from behind the computer screen, reading books, listening to YouTube videos, et cetera, right?
2: Yeah, everything we've learned is by failing. Yeah, we forget about the successes and we remember the failures like they were yesterday.
1: I love it. Well, Jacob, you know it's coming. We're gonna end with the lightning round, just a series of questions we'd like to fire at you. And then I wanna kind of wrap up with uh, where people can find more about you, but let's go ahead and jump into that if you're ready. Good to go. All right, first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that?
2: The biggest hurdle getting going was really just not knowing anything and making mistakes and being undercapitalized. And we overcame that over time just by doing deals and learning about operations and execution and underwriting and financing, just kind of learning by doing. And we, we like to say that we've been doing this full time for over 15 years now. And we like to say we don't get smarter every year. We just get less stupid.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, Jacob, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success personally?
2: One thing that I've really tried to focus on the last year is calendar blocking more, uh, really managing my calendar more effectively. We book a lot of Zoom calls with folks. And if you leave your calendar open, it's great to have those Zoom calls, but you don't get anything done. You don't have time for focus or abstract thought or big picture planning. So just blocking time off every day to focus on the important and less of the urgent has been very valuable.
1: Awesome. Do you have an online resource you find valuable in your kind of day-to-day?
2: Well, I'm a voracious reader of news, which I probably waste way too much time doing. But as far as our resource that we use for our self-storage business, we built some software that scrapes all of the uh, top operators' websites around the country and exports real-time street rates into our database. So we use that daily. And that really helps us not only underwrite potential new acquisitions, but also on our revenue management side. And then uh, the another online resource, which you all know about, I'm not a big social media guy, but uh, LinkedIn has been huge for us on capital raising. We've raised quite a bit of money off of there doing LinkedIn campaigns and posts. So that's, that's been huge for our equity pipeline in the last couple of years. If you're not using LinkedIn to raise money, you should look into it.
1: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Jacob, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why?
2: Well, I regrettably don't read a lot of business books. I just can't get through them. I mostly stick to historic nonfiction. And I mentioned this on a few other podcasts, but I can't resist mentioning it again on this one. It's a book called In the Kingdom of Ice by Hampton Sides. And it's a book about uh, polar exploration. And back in the day, these guys thought that if you got far enough north, all the ice would melt and you could go over the top of the globe to get to Asia. And of course they found out that wasn't the case. It's an epic survival story. These guys walked out a thousand miles off the ice. The guys that were weak stayed behind and uh, another group of folks walked another thousand miles into Siberia to bring help. By the time they got back, they'd all passed away. But the book is not only just beautifully written, good prose, good historic context, but it also reminds us how, you know, if we have a hard day at work or at home or whatever it might be, it's all so relative, you know, at least we're not eating the leather off our shoes and, you know, wading through a thousand miles of snow to survive. So it puts things in perspective.
1: that perspective is really important. That's a book I've never heard of. We'll uh, link it in the show notes for audience members to check out. And Captain
2: Sides is the author. Yeah. He's put out a couple of good ones. Kind of like that one.
1: Awesome. Cool. Jacob, last question in the lightning round. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20 year old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20 year old Jacob?
2: Don't sell anything. Ever. That's what I would say. Don't sell. Yeah. There's a time and a place to sell. And if you get a crazy price, it's really tough to say no. But I've concluded after doing this for a while and really only in the last three years that the the path to wealth creation in real estate is not lumpy wheel transactions. It's not buying, making better, and selling over and over again. It's holding for the long term and creating repeatable, recurring durable cash flow. So that would be my advice. Hold on to stuff.
1: I love it. Well. Jacob, what does the future hold for Van West, yourself and your partners?
2: Well, I've been partners with all of my partners since 2009. And my third partner joined us in about 2014. So we've been together for a long time. Next year, we're launching our next storage fund. We're doing probably two funds. We're doing a kind of an income with capital appreciation focused fund, which is a continuation of the last two funds that we did. And we're also launching a development fund that probably won't go live until you know, early Q2, somewhere in there. Uh, But 2022 is just uh, focusing on acquisitions, deal flow, capital raising, growing our operations team. We've got 55 employees right now in our operations team. We're going to have to grow that substantially to kind of onboard these new assets. So, yeah, just finding deals and executing and continuing to build a business.
1: What's keeping you uh, motivated, excited for the future, both your personal life and professional, if you will?
2: Well, we've got two kids, two boys that are three and two, so they keep us busy. It's a full-time job here and a full-time job at home. Yeah. But uh, really the motivation comes from just doing deals is fun. We wake up every day and come in here and solve problems. We have issues like every other business does, but buying stuff is fun. And then looking back on your financials you know, a year ago and seeing what the deal is doing today compared to what you thought it could do is always fascinating. So we just like doing deals. We're just a bunch of real estate hacks, rubbing together self-storage facilities all over the country. And we'll be doing that for the foreseeable future.
1: Awesome. Well, Jacob, if people want to learn more about what you're doing, reach out to you or your team, where's the best place for them to find you?
2: They can email me at jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. Fantastic.
1: We'll link all that in the show notes for audience members to reach out if they want to. Jacob, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been a lot of fun. Look forward to having you back on maybe next year and talk
2: about how those funds are going. And to you too, Jacob, we appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thanks so much. We'll have a happy new year. and We'll talk next year, hopefully. Take care. All right. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Jacob Vanderslice. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Jacob is a really interesting guy, as you can tell. If you want to learn more about what he's doing, connect with him. You can find all of those links in the show notes. As always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, the best place to do that is at www.jacobayers.com. Until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want.
0: You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice.